Loving Father, as we look at your exhortation this morning to love without hypocrisy, we pray that you would show us what that means as we examine these these commands that Paul sets before us that tell us how that kind of love behaves. We pray that you would stir us up, that you would convict us, that you would convince us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, in a manner that honors our Savior and that builds up your body. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning at our worship time, we went a little late, uh, and we, uh, we did not get the prayer time. And Joseph did exactly what the openers are instructed to do, and that's to bring us to wrap us up at 10 o'clock. Uh, I want to let you know that, that if you feel that, that zeal for prayer this morning, which, we, which is a good thing, there's going to be a, a group meeting from 10.15 to, or 11.15 to about 11.45 upstairs in the prayer room, and you are invited to join them. During Jesus' earthly ministry, one of the sins that repeatedly provoked his most forceful rebukes was the sin of hypocrisy. He rebuked the Jewish leaders and others for hypocrisy 15 times in one chapter. Uh, Well, 15 times in Matthew and 7 times in one chapter, which is chapter 23. And and the wording of some of those rebukes is scathing. He said things like, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He said, You're like whitewashed tombs. You look great. You're beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So, Hypocrisy was something that Jesus took very seriously. On the positive side, one of our Lord's most fundamental commands was to love. In fact, every single time that Jesus uttered the words, this is my commandment, or a new commandment I give to you, it was always about love. In Romans 12, 9-16, Paul puts those two things together. He puts together the command to love with the command to flee from hypocrisy. And then he gives us a list of practical ways that we, as the redeemed of God, must act in order to work out unhypocritical love. In order that we may build one another up and glorify our Savior. In verse 9 of chapter 12, Paul begins, Let love be without hypocrisy. And then he says, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. I believe that those two parts, those two exhortations, lay out an outline for the rest of what he's going to say in verses 9 through 21, verses 10 to 21, the whole rest of this chapter. First, let love be without hypocrisy. In verses 10 through 16, Paul's going to lay out a series of exhortations that show us what it means when people act on that command, what it looks like when we, when we love without hypocrisy. And then in verses 17 to 21, if you look at verse 17, he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then in verse 21, he concludes the chapter by saying, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So the second half of this, the remainder of this chapter is focused on that second exhortation. There's another thing that splits those two portions of uh, of this chapter up, verses 10 to 16, verses 17 to 21. In that first piece, the phrase... One another occurs three times. It doesn't occur at all in verses 17 to 21. And in the second part, verses 17 to 21, the phrase all men occurs twice. That phrase doesn't occur at all in the first half. So in the first part, verses 16 to 21, bear with me on the structure here, verses 16 to 21 is about the body. It's about how we deal with one another 
as believers. The second part is how we deal with those outside the body who oppose us and who oppose the gospel. Love without hypocrisy. The word that's translated without hypocrisy, on upokritos, anti-hypocrisy, against hypocrisy, has a few different dimensions or connotations that are worth considering. First is the meaning that you'd expect. The one that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23 when he was rebuking the scribes and Pharisees. In, the, in verse 3 of that chapter, P, uh, Jesus said to the multitudes and the disciples, he said, when you listen to what these Jewish leaders say, do what they say you're supposed to do, but don't do what they do. Because he said in 23.3, they say things and they do not do them. That's hypocrisy. Saying one thing but doing another. And so to be unhypocritical is to do what you say. And love that is without hypocrisy does what it declares should be done. But not only does the person who loves without hypocrisy love the way he says he should, he loves the way he believes in his heart that he should. Love without hypocrisy is unfake. It's genuine. It's sincere. In 1 Peter 1.22, Peter said, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And when he says a sincere love of the brethren, it's the exact same Greek word, without hypocrisy. Peter says that the way that unhypocritical love plays out is in the form of fervent love from the heart. That's unfake love. But there's yet another way that love can be fake, and that is when it doesn't line up with reality, when it doesn't line up with the truth that God has revealed. In 1 Corinthians 13.6, Paul says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Unfake love has a critical, inviolable connection with truth as God has revealed it. And it also has a connection with what I'd call unfake faith. See, faith has content, and that content is always the truth that God has revealed. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, Paul told Timothy... When he was telling him to stay on in Ephesus, after Paul left Ephesus, Paul was going to leave Timothy behind, and he said, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange, teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and in, endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. So he's telling Timothy, I'm leaving you here so that you can oppose those people who are teaching garbage. They're teaching human speculation. And they're teaching strange doctrines. And then he says, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. That's the contrast. There's a contrast between false doctrine, false teaching, and real teaching that's that's in keeping with God's word. And then he says, verse 5, and many of you know this verse, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And the word sincere is without hypocrisy. Unfake love, like unfake faith, is is love that is held in the heart. It's love that is in keeping with what it says, and it is love that is legitimate because it is in keeping with the truth that God has revealed. It's not based on the false propositions or speculations of men. We're going to talk some about that as we proceed. This principle that godly love along with godly faith always matches up with God's revealed truth and reflects his character is critical for us to understand because this world has it completely wrong. The world believes passionately that love is a passion. 
That love is an emotion that you fall into. It's something that happens to you. And because it's so completely emotion-driven, it isn't necessarily governed or even tempered in any way by what you believe. Or, heaven forbid, by what is objectively true. Years ago, a friend whom I hadn't heard from in some time, whom I considered to be a brother in Christ, called me late one night. And he said to me that he had fallen in love with a woman he worked with and that he was leaving his wife. And he clearly wanted my blessing but did not get it. And he he pleaded with me. He said with all urgency, he said, If God didn't want me to be with this woman, He wouldn't have let me fall in love with her. He said, when I'm with her, I feel a deeper love than I've ever felt toward my wife. And she treats me better than my wife has ever treated me. (laughs) And think about it. If love is actually more about what we feel than about what we do in light of God's truth, then that was unhypocritical. Because he was doing what he passionately felt and forcefully believed he must do. What's hypocritical about that? See, he was being very consistent. He just wasn't being consistent with reality. He wasn't being consistent with the truth. And when God talks about love that is without hypocrisy, He means love that acknowledges His character and His truth. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? (laughs) That's pretty blunt. God has no interest in what we do from our own depraved hearts. The world has that completely wrong. What God cares about is what we do from hearts that have been transformed by His truth and by His character. Conformed to His character, conformed to His will. When our actions, including actions that we feel like are loving... (laughs) contradict the character of the new man, the redeemed man, the man who has been remade in the likeness of God, when our actions contradict that new man, that's hypocrisy, as God defines it, because it's putting a mask on what's real. It's presenting something that's not real. And that's what hypocrisy is. The first time I heard the song from Casting Crowns called Who Am I? I was listening to the radio and I heard those first three words, uh, three words, Who Am I? And I, and I cringed and I, the red flag went up in my mind and I thought, oh great, another misguided Christian song that's all about me. And then I kept listening and tears came to my eyes and they were good tears because the heart of that song was three other words. I am yours. I am yours. The one and only thing that I need to know about me is not who I am. It's whose I am. I'm yours, Lord. In Romans 12, 9, the word that Paul uses for love is agape. Let love be without hypocrisy. Uh, Agape, and I I don't usually like to to talk about a lot of Greek words, but these are terms that I think are mostly familiar. And this one I think is largely misunderstood. Agape was a fairly rare word in Greek usage until the Christian church came along. And it occurs over 200 times in the New Testament, mostly in reference to God's love directed toward us and the love that we are thus called to manifest toward one another. Agape is often defined in Christian circles as unconditional love. Now, I agree with my brother Bob that that definition screams out for clarification. 
especially in this age when the notion of unconditional love has taken on the connotation of love that expects absolutely nothing from the person being loved. That's a grievously flawed characterization of the love that God has demonstrated toward us in Jesus Christ and that we are called to extend to one another. It is certainly true, it is foundationally true, that the love of God comes to us as an undeserved gift. That it's not based on anything we've done, it is secured for us by Jesus Christ because of what He did when He went to the cross. So in that sense, you could call it unconditional. But the notion that the God who gave His only begotten Son in order to make us the objects of His love, now has no claim over our lives, is utter nonsense. And it has no foundation in Scripture whatsoever. Quite the opposite. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, the love of Christ constrains us to live no longer for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and rose again on our behalf. God's love compels us to a response of unrestrained love and submission toward Him and of self-denying love toward one another. As Paul began this chapter, Romans 12 and verse 1, he said the only reasonable work of service for us who have been made living, living, holy, acceptable vessels is that we present our whole selves as sacrifices to God, sold out to His purposes, not ours. And that we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. If our love does not reflect that utter submission to God's purposes and God's truth, it's a fake. It's a crummy imitation. All right. It's a lot of development on the first verse, but, but that idea of unhypocritical love, I think, is foundational. In verses 10 to 16, there's a, a string of short exhortations that tell us at a very practical level what unhypocritical love looks like in action. And the first thing to note about those verses is that, as I mentioned before, they're talking about how we as believers deal with one another not about how we deal with the world. Paul just talked in verses 4 through 8 about the body, right? About how God has given to each believer a measure of faith and that he has given to each believer spiritual gifts so that we will work together in order to further the work of Christ. We'll work together with Christ as our head. And that ongoing work of Christ, as we talked about last time, only proceeds properly if we're together. In verse 9, he calls us to unhypocritical love, and then he tells us how that love manifests itself. Verse 10, he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And so, unhypocritical love is devoted to other believers in brotherly love. Now, brotherly love is love that acknowledges and treats a fellow believer as a family member. It's, it's a nurturing and familiar love. And Paul says it's devoted love. That means that it's steadfast, it's committed, it doesn't give up easily. It's not easily sidetracked. Now, I don't, I don't want to wear out the war analogies, but when I read that verse, I can't help thinking of Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers. When soldiers fight several brutal battles side by side, they develop a camaraderie, they develop a bond that civilians don't know anything about. And you and I are trench partners in the greatest battle of all. It's a battle that is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6. 
And it is a battle for the souls of men and for the sake of Christ. And that battle never abates. We're in it together all day, every day. And we are part of the greatest brotherhood of all, which is the body of Christ. The more engaged we are together in the battle to which God has assigned, uh, that he's assigned to us to, to fight, the deeper, the deeper our kinship with one another becomes. I believe the reason that many Christians in the modern church, especially the church in the West, don't experience that kind of world-defying connection with one another that Paul talks about over and over is because so many of us are spectators rather than fighters. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that Paul mentions in Ephesians 4 doesn't happen just because we've shared coffee and donuts and had superficial conversation. It happens when we're devoted to serving one another, to building one another up in order to build up the body of Christ because it is the body of Christ that does the work of Christ. Beloved, there is not much this side of heaven that we get to take with us, but everything that we invest in our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ is treasure for eternity. In verse 10, Paul says in the second half, give preference to one another in honor. The Holman Christian Standard Version, I think, does the best job of translating this, and it says, outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, to show honor means to highly value another person. And it also means to enhance that person's reputation in the eyes of others so that others also highly value that person. When Paul says outdo one another in showing honor, he's not just talking about being self-denying. He's telling us we should be tripping over each other (laughs) to show honor to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have some trouble with that concept in the West because we really don't care very much about honor. In fact, we really don't care very much about shame. In this culture, we think that we're entitled to say whatever comes into our minds and to do whatever we please, even if it dishonors us and others around us. But that way of thinking is entirely foreign to the way and to the Word of God. We are called always to act in an honorable, respectable manner. Why? Because we are the bearers of Christ, and it is His reputation that we're protecting. And we're called to honor one another in the body of Christ precisely because our brothers and sisters are also Christ-bearers. And it's his reputation that we're protecting. One of the many phenomena in our culture that I think rails against this principle is what I'd call put-down humor. We find it wonderfully funny to dishonor others in front of friends, even while they're sitting right, right with us. We jump at the chance to dishonor our spouse for a quick laugh or to put down a friend for a chuckle. <laughs> now, at one level, and in certain company, perhaps those things are, are fairly harmless. But I think it's pretty telling that at the same time that we find it so easy to speak words that dishonor, we find it really hard to say the things that build up. It's like we feel forced if we say something that intentionally builds up a brother or a sister in front of others. Why are we embarrassed when it comes to honoring and shameless when it comes to shaming? By the way, what some believers call prayer requests amount to gossip. Be careful what you repeat. Proverbs 17.9 says, 
He who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Love is devoted to guarding the honor of a fellow believer. Not to be fake, but precisely to be real. Because from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. We are called to see Jesus in one another and to point Jesus out to other people when we see him in one another. We're called to always, always honor our Savior and our Master. Back in seminary, when I was working on pools for money and I would go two or three times a week to the big distribution houses where where we'd buy chemicals and pool repair parts and such. And there was a group of guys that worked at one of those warehouses that used to, it was like they had a, a, a trashing wives club. They would talk incessantly about the ball and chain, about, you know, how, how rough it was at home. Well, I was a newlywed, and I had resolved before I took my vows with Debbie that I would always and only speak in public the things that would honor her. And you know what? I didn't have to work at that. She makes it easy. It's not at all hard for me to find honorable things to say about my wife. I walked in one day to that warehouse and sat at the counter and was about to place an order and the guys were going off about their wives and I just thought maybe here's an opportunity. And I said, from the heart, I said, man, I am so thankful to God for my wife. She is so good to me. And she moves me toward him. And it was like a mute bomb had gone off in that place. (laughs) Those guys just sat there speechless. And I'm sure they thought I was some kind of nut, but that's okay. Because they knew that I held my wife in high esteem. And that I saw her as a gift from God. Guys, when people from honor-based cultures in the East, especially, well, many of them Muslims, see that we embrace shame over honor, they notice. We are called to honor one another because we honor Christ. Unhypocritical love is not lazy. It is fired up for God. Verse 11, Paul says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The love that we're called to demonstrate in the body of Christ is variously described throughout this passage as devoted, diligent, fervent, persevering. Now those are not words that apply to a concept of love that is convenient. Things that are convenient don't require perseverance or diligence. You just go with them, right? And those words don't fit a concept of love that it always that always feels good. Paul says we are not to lag behind or to be lazy in the application of diligence when it comes to unhypocritical love. Genuine love demands commitment, diligence, and it demands persistence in the face of opposition. When you set out to show Godly love to a brother or sister in Christ, don't be easily sidetracked. In fact, don't be sidetracked at all. (laughs) Persevere, even if your brother doesn't respond the way you know that he should. Your assignment isn't to make somebody do something, it's to speak the truth in love. I really appreciate the work of Jim Hummel uh, in the area of counseling as discipleship because when it comes to the toughest emotional and relational issues that, that show up in the body of Christ, I do not believe the church is supposed to quickly hand people off to professional counselors and psychologists. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't or can't use those who counsel professionally. What I'm saying is that we are called to bear one another's burdens, and we're called to persevere in doing so 
even when it's difficult. If God brings, sets before you a believing couple and you see that, that their marriage is circling the drain and you make an initial effort to encourage them, to nudge them toward patterns of interacting that are, that are godly and you encounter resistance because they're not quite getting it, don't give up easily. In fact, don't give up at all. Unhypocritical love is devoted, diligent, fervent, and persevering. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. So we don't wimp out. We stay in the fight. That's what real unhypocritical love is about And when we do that, God takes that love and he uses that as a scalpel to restore. He does surgery. He restores marriages. He transforms crippled, hurting brothers and sisters into valiant soldiers in his battle. If you've made an effort, as I've seen some in this body do, to reach out to a young man or a young woman in the body who is struggling mightily to grow up, and to walk in a manner worthy of his calling or her calling in Christ, don't give up easily. In fact, don't give up at all. When you feel like you're growing weary and doing that which is good and loving, go back and read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 to 31, and pray it back to God. He's the author of love, and he is an overflowing well of the water of life. It says, do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. It will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Our God is an overflowing well, and we have everything that we need to stay in the fight every day. Love, unhypocritical love, is fueled by hope and prayer. In verse 12, Paul says, Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, Devoted, devoted to prayer. These are themes that Paul already talked about. Back in chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, he said, Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And our hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given, given to us. That's that overflowing well. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts and it overflows toward one another. We rejoice in hope. We have our eyes fixed not on the things that are here, but on the things that are laid up for us in Christ. And that hope always gives us cause for rejoicing. Always. We persevere in tribulation because we know how this is all going to end up, right? (laughs) We know where we're going. Or better yet, we know into whose presence we're going. And so we press on. And we continue steadfastly in prayer because only God is sovereign. He's the one who gave us spiritual gifts for the building up of the body, for the work of Christ. He's the only one who makes us sufficient to do what he has assigned. And so that demands that we be prayerful, right? He's the one who's sovereign. Unhypocritical love is generous and it is hospitable. In verse 13, Paul said, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. 
Now, when Paul talks about contributing to the needs of the saints, that wording is not necessarily limited just to money. But I do think that's what Paul had primarily in mind when he wrote this. In chapter 15, even as he was writing this letter, Paul was preparing to go to Jerusalem to give to the saints at Jerusalem a gift of money that had been prepared by the saints in Macedonia, cities like Thessalonica and Philippi. In Acts 2, verses 44 to 45, Luke says the early church had all things in common. Believers were selling their property and their possessions. They were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And they weren't doing it grudgingly. They were doing it joyfully. That sounds crazy to us. But it shouldn't. It's one of the hardest things for us. Here in the West, we cling tooth and nail to our money and our possessions. But one of the greatest tests in all of Scripture of whether our love is real or hypocritical is what we do with our money. It comes up over and over again. Do we really trust the God who adorns the birds of the air and the lilies of the field to take care of us? Do we really believe that God is the one and only source of wealth in the first place, that it comes from Him and belongs to Him? There's plenty of emphatic uh, evidence in Scripture to support both those propositions. If we do believe those things, then we should be eager, we should be eager to share with one another what God has entrusted to us. (laughs) We talk about what God has given to us. No, it's what God has entrusted to us. I know a dear brother in this body who got himself into debt because he was so committed to meeting the material needs that he saw around him that he racked up some debt. Now, I don't recommend anybody going into debt. That's not a constructive practice. But i got to tell you, that brother's heart put me to shame. And I will never forget it. Most of us can't even conceive of giving until we're in the red. When those folks in Macedonia, those brothers and sisters in Macedonia, sent that gift with Paul to Jerusalem, they didn't give out of abundance, they gave out of poverty. And I think it's pretty interesting and pretty consistent that those who seem to give the biggest percentage of what they have are those who have the least. Now that's not supposed to be a guilt trip. The life of selfless service and godly love to which we are called is a response to the abundant mercies of God that He has showered upon us. (laughs) We don't have anything to protect. God loves a cheerful giver. He calls us to give lovingly and willingly and not under compulsion. But if we're clinging to money and material things, then we have lost sight of that which is life indeed. It's that simple. And if it takes a little guilt, a little shame, a little humbling by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to get our eyes back in the right place so that we learn again how to give joyfully of what God has entrusted to us, then so be it. That's productive guilt. Immediately after, Paul says, that we are to contribute to the needs of the saints. He says we are to practice hospitality. It's right there on that same slide. Now, what's hospitality? Well, hospitality is kindness and care towards strangers or guests. Many in the body of Christ have said that uh, hospitality is a spiritual gift. And so if you have the spiritual gift of hospitality, then you get to be the one who has people over for dinner and who hosts a missionary family in your home when they're here on furlough, or who takes a guest, a visitor to the church out to lunch on Sunday, you have the gift of hospitality. So that's your job. It's not my job. It's not my gift. But, but guys, 
Paul was talking about spiritual gifts earlier in this chapter, not here. Look at the things that he says in the context of practice hospitality. He says, contributing to the needs of the saints, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. Are those spiritual gifts that are limited only to a certain few in the body? No, those are parts of the godly lifestyle. That's how unhypocritical love works itself out in every single believer. Hospitality is about freely giving of your time, your money, your home, your privacy, and all your other resources to show kindness to others. And as with all the rest of these exhortations, it requires diligence. It's not supposed to be convenient. (laughs) But when we do it, God uses it powerfully. You talk about an opportunity to get to know people. Practice hospitality. And God will use it to build relationship and community in his body. He will build up the body and he will further the gospel of Jesus Christ through a strong body of saints. Verse 14, unhypocritical love is eager to bless, not to curse. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. There's a very clear emphasis on the word blessed there. It happens twice in one short verse in exactly the same form. And at first glance, it looks like Paul's kind of jumping tracks here because he's been talking about the love that we manifest toward one another within the body of Christ. And now he says, bless those who persecute you. And I hope he's talking about unbelievers there. He's going to have a lot more to say in verses 17 to 21 about not returning evil for evil, not returning curse for curse. But it's entirely appropriate that he puts this command here because he's talking about how unhypocritical love acts. And in all relationships, whether it is with believers or with unbelievers, we are called to bless and not to curse. And why is that? It's because we have been blessed. In 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, Peter says, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And then he explains the basis for that. He says, for you were called for this very, very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. <laughs> Why do we bless rather than curse when we are cursed? Because we have been blessed. It would be the height of hypocrisy if we who deserved only condemnation but have received eternal blessing from the hand of God then turned around and responded to another person's curse with a curse. Unhypocritical love blesses because it has been blessed. Verse 15 Godly love comes alongside others. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There's a great passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that's all about comfort. (laughs) Paul exhorts that we are to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Three times in one verse. Unhypocritical love always passes along or pays forward the comfort that it has received. From the hand of God. Not to do so would be hypocritical. The verse just before 2 Corinthians 1 4 says, Our Heavenly Father is the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. He's the source, He's the one who shows us what comfort is, (laughs) and we pass it along. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. Now, I would say there's a lot of that that goes on at CBC. And that's a very good thing. But, beloved, there are some in our midst who rejoice alone and who weep alone. You can't rejoice with your sister if you're never with your sister. And you can't weep with your brother if you don't even know he's weeping. We are members of one another. 
like the parts of a body. What happens when one part of your body is hurt? I was, when I was in the pool business, I was sawing on some PVC one day, and I never had a vice, so I was gambling. And I slipped, and I gashed my arm pretty badly with a hacksaw. And I started bleeding, and, and of course, my brain and the rest of my body just ignored it while I lost several pints of blood. No, that's not how it works. My whole body and every fiber of my being paid attention to that gash and made sure that it was taken care of. The parts of our body are interdependent, right? They know each other really well because they spend a lot of time together. And this physical body that we walk around in every day, this is a reminder, this is a memorial for us of what the body of Christ is supposed to be like. And when one part is hurting, we're supposed to pounce on that in love. Even if we know someone's about to be hurt, we're supposed to pounce on that. It means we have to know each other. We have to have familiarity with one another's needs. And that means that we have to take some time with each other, right? And the women's retreat that occurred in the last couple of days, from the reports I've heard, was was a great move in that direction for our body. It was women learning of one another's needs and carrying those needs to God. That's powerful. There is great power in that. You see, prayer is integrally part of this. When he says be devoted to prayer, that touches on all of this. Verse 16, love is not proud and does not play favorites. Paul says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. That means arrogant or lifted up. But associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now, when we see the command, be of the same mind toward one another, the first thing we think of is, okay, we're supposed to agree on everything. (laughs) That's not what Paul's talking about, even though that does show up that way in some translations. In this context, what he's getting at is, treat each other as you treat yourself, right? See each other as peers, not, not... you at some higher level than anyone else in the body. It doesn't matter how much money they have or what kind of background they have or how well they speak English. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. If they're a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, they are a fellow heir of God. They have the same inheritance that you do. When all this stuff burns away, you're going to stand shoulder to shoulder in the presence of God for all eternity. And that's all that matters. Paul says, do not be wise in your own estimation. And go back to how the whole cataclysmic crash of mankind started. Romans chapter 1. Professing to be wise, men became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Dot, dot, dot. The demise of mankind was about pride. It was about us exalting ourselves over God's truth. And the solution to that demise is when we fall on our face before God and submit ourselves to Him. First, by realizing we have nothing to offer Him. And we receive His gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And then, every moment of every day after that, we fall on our face before him and we submit to his version of truth and we cast aside ours. We humble ourselves before him and we humble ourselves toward one another as fellow heirs of the grace of life and of God. Humility is foundational to everything that God intends for us. 
All right, we're out of time. How do you boil down some, to something concise that everybody can walk away with all these this list of commands? <laughs> I don't think you do. I'm not going to try. Each of these individual exhortations is critical to us as members of the body of Christ. There isn't one of these that we can take lightly. And it would serve us well, each of us individually and us as a body, if we would go home this week and we'd spend some serious time and some serious meditation and some serious prayer on this assignment. We will never arrive when it comes to loving others as we have been loved by God. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul gave high praise to the the church at Thessalonica for their faith, their hope, and their love. But he told them over and over to excel still more. Wherever you are when when it comes to loving without hypocrisy, to building up your brothers and sisters, to honoring them, to being devoted to them in love, to praying for them, to being hospitable, to coming alongside them, to weeping when they weep and rejoicing when they rejoice. Wherever you are in that, excel still more. And the body of Christ will be strengthened and the work of Christ will go on powerfully by God's grace. Loving Father, thank you for this body. These are... My brothers and sisters, we are brothers and sisters to one another. We are trench partners in the greatest battle of all. And Lord, we fight that battle for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would work in our hearts so that we would not take any of this lightly, so that we would be devoted to one another. We would be diligent and persevering and fervent about loving without hypocrisy, about loving as we have been loved by Jesus Christ. We pray this for his sake, that his name and his fame may be spread among all men. We pray it in his name. Amen.